you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. Hi, this is Larry Mantle, host of Air Talk on KPCC. Since the start of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had a daily segment on Air Talk devoted to the latest information about COVID-19. As time's gone on, we've looked at vaccines and how the virus and pandemic have affected the lives of Southern Californians. That includes doctors, nurses, epidemiologists, and other medical professionals fighting the virus on the front lines. In each episode of this podcast, we'll speak with one of our experts on the rotating panel of AirTalk guests who will be sharing their expertise with us daily. You can also listen anytime at las.com kpcc.org, or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. From UCLA's Gavin School of Medicine, infectious disease specialist and assistant clinical professor of medicine, Dr. Paul Adamson. Dr. Adamson, very good Friday morning to you. Good morning, Larry. So nice to be with you today. Let's start first of all with the good news about where we are on COVID-19 and the Omicron variant. It seems it's a very consistent decline any clouds on the immediate horizon? Um, no, I think, you know, we're seeing really good signs that infections continue to decline, you know, here in L.A. and California and um, really around the country. And I think there have been quite a precipitous decline of infections. And also we're seeing declines in hospitalizations as well, which are all uh, reassuring signs that hopefully this um, you know, the worst of this surge is is behind us. The BA2 strain uh, that's closely related to Omicron, uh, according to uh, the CDC, is about 30 percent um, easier to contract. But it doesn't seem to be fueling an increase in cases anywhere that I'm aware of in the U.S. To what do you attribute that? Yeah, no, it's very interesting. Um, it's something, so this is a subvariant of Omicron. I know we've talked about it um, here before. Um, it's something that's being watched really closely because there are parts of the world, um, you know, in South Africa, the UK, and Denmark that have seen um, a really big increase in the prevalence of um, the BA2 variant kind of following in these, uh, the heels of the wave of Omicron. Um, and we're not seeing that here in the U.S. yet. Um, you know, for example, in Los Angeles, um, the, it's not the predominant strain here. It's uh, making up about 1% of sequenced cases here in Los Angeles. Um, but it is something we're watching very closely, and it might be that we follow in these the footsteps of these other places where it does um, sort of increase in prevalence um, in the coming weeks. I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case. Um, but we're still learning more about it. It is seems to be about 30% more transmissible. Um, it doesn't appear at the moment to be more severe than um, Omicron itself. Um, and, you know, thinking about why these things might, um, you know, might be different here in the U.S. is, you know, we had quite a high peak of, of Omicron and, um, you know, a lot of people had infections from Omicron. So it might be difficult for a know, a related variant to kind of get a foothold and to find um, people who are continued to be susceptible to uh, infections. 
If you have questions for Dr. Paul Adamson of UCLA's Geffen School of Medicine, we're at 866-893-KPCC, or you can email us at atcomments at kpcc.org. And a reminder, please, you know, your questions need to be as general as possible about COVID. Uh, Dr. Adamson really can't give individualized uh, medical advice. So uh, please make sure to ask the most general question uh, that you that you can that will relate to numerous people. Uh, Dr. Adamson, let's uh, talk about the mask mandates that are being lifted for vaccinated people uh, expected today in L.A. County. L.A. Unified drops its outdoor mask mandate. Um, we've got the air travel mandate expiring next month. Your thoughts about all of these falling away? Does it make sense to you? Yeah, I think I, I think it is a, a sign that um, things are getting better at the moment. Um, you know, I think masking for for a long time has been a critical part of our um, sort of layers of protection. Um, and you know, masks are definitely very important in times of of high transmission of virus. Um, and obviously, we ha- we went through one of those surges um, just recently, and we're sort of coming out of this, um, you know, in this post surge area where um, masks might not be um, as, uh, you know, important as they, as they were, um, you know, a month or so ago. Um, I do think it's, it, you know, so it is a good sign, and I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to um, some of these changes that are occurring. Um, and I think the CDC is also um, planning to make some changes to their masking guidance as well, which will also um, be welcomed. But I think it's also important to, to remind folks that, you know, there. I know the communication around masks has been um, somewhat uh, complicated um, over the last year or so, um, and so I think people need to know that that masks are, are really important um, in in terms of preventing uh, uh, infections and and are very important in times of high transmission. So while we might be entering this post-surge area um, or era where masks aren't required per se, um, it's possible that you know a new variant comes along that. Um, is more transmissible. It's possible that we have another um, surge in cases in the future. And at that point, um, mask might be reinstated. So um, just a reminder for folks that this is a good sign. Um, and, and, you know, I'm looking forward to this as well, but just to acknowledge that um, may not be permanent. We might need. Yeah. Well, and, and um, do you take it as a hopeful sign that the B82 subvariant of Omicron hasn't taken off so much here? I mean, could could that be indicative that it may be tougher for new variants to gain a foothold because so many people have now either had COVID or been fully vaccinated and boosted? Yeah, I, I think that that's certainly um, part of it. And um, I think it, it might be one of the reasons that it's harder for the BA2 variant to take a hold here. Um you know, there are a lot of people who are vaccinated and boosted. And as we know, there's a lot of people who had infections um, over the last uh, two months here. Um, so there is a lot of what we call community immunity um, to COVID-19. And so I think um, that is a hopeful sign that that perhaps infections will um, continue to decline even um, with the BA2 variant. But, you know, it is something we need to watch really closely because if the variant starts to increase, um, then, you know, we might have to take different precautions. All right. Uh, I found it so interesting on on the masking thing. Um, 
the Institute of Governmental Studies at UC Berkeley uh, with the L.A. Times conducted a poll uh, that was released yesterday on attitudes of Californians toward mask mandates uh, and vaccine mandates in K-12 through schools. And uh, the poll showed this was taken back um, earlier this month. It was early part of this month. Uh, nearly 9,000 California voters suggest continued broad public support for policies aimed at reducing the spread of coronavirus and um, that the majority of parents of students uh, approve of of students continuing to mask. Now, it may be that this is an older poll just now being released, but I found it interesting. Siena College did a poll in New York, which found, though, the majority of, of folks there supported masks in schools, the majority of parents did not. But in California, you've got a very high percent of black and Latino parents who support continued masking in schools. And I just thought that was interesting, the racial ethnic distinction and the New York versus California distinction. Again, this may be different polling results. If you did it now in California, that may we may just be seeing an earlier snapshot. But your thoughts on that, Dr. Adamson? Yeah, no, I, I actually think that that's really um, interesting. I'm not quite sure what the differences are um, between, you know, California and New York. Um, but but I do think that I think most people recognize that um, you know, masking in schools, um, you know, is really there to protect the students and to, um, you know, avoid uh, school closures and interruptions to students' learning. Um, so I think most people recognize that it's not there, you know, as a sort of Form of punishment for um, for for students, and I think um, you know in places like Los Angeles and in California, our vaccination coverage is actually quite still quite low um, among school age children, and I think that that might be one reason that people recognize that masks um, can can further help um, reduce the um, impact of the disease in um, school age kids. Um, the, the findings that um, masks in, in schools are uh, more supported among, um, you know, Black and Latino um, Californians, I think, is also interesting. And I think when we think about how this virus has um, impacted different communities, um, I know that, um, you know, Black and Latino Californians have kind of borne the disproportionate burden of um, COVID-19. So I think, you know, part of this idea that um, masks are um, you know, important is that I think people recognize that they are an important um, tool that we have to uh, prevent infections. And in communities where uh, infections really kind of had a really big burden, um, I think people recognize that and I think have support for uh, those interventions. What what uh, I find interesting, though, is that my understanding is the outbreaks that we've seen, even among kids who've tested positive, those were not community transmission at, or, or not transmission institutionally in the school. This has happened at home, and the kids have brought it from home to the school. So it's kind of interesting that they're in these um, in communities that have been very hit hard by COVID-19 has generally been in family gatherings or congregate care or multifamily living situations or parents who have had to work because they're essential workers. And so, you know, they've they've 
had to be at greater risk and didn't have the advantage of being able to work from home. So it's interesting that the that there's also focus on the school as this potential source of, of transmission. Because in, in parts of the country um, where the mask mandate for schools has gone away, I don't, we haven't seen spikes in transmission that I'm aware of. Yeah, I'm actually, I'm, I'm not quite sure um, on that. Um, I do know there's been some data that's come out looking at, um, you know, I mean, they're, they're sort of ecological um, analyses looking at different states um, and, and masking mandates in schools and in, and in states where uh, masks are required in schools um, actually have fewer disruptions to learning and fewer closures in states that don't have uh, mandates. And so, I mean, there's a lot that kind of goes into that that's not probably just related to masking, but it does kind of support the idea that masks can help to reduce um, infections in schools. Yeah, if they're testing the same, I wonder though, in places that that aren't requiring masks, if they're as serious about the testing, is you know here in California, districts have been quite serious about testing. Yeah, no, I think that that's part of it um, as well, and and I think going back to what you said earlier, there's you know a lot of the transmission in schools actually probably uh, mirrors the transmission that's happening in the community. So if there's a high amount of transmission happening in the community, unfortunately, kids who you know, many of whom are still very susceptible to um, infection because um, they haven't had the opportunity to get vaccinated until, you know, relatively recently. Um, You know, they might reflect some of that ongoing transmission in the community. Dr. Adamson, I wanted to ask you about the Sanofi GSK vaccine that apparently showed a significant effectiveness in clinical trials we have a timeline for when that might be um, reviewed and approved by the FDA. Yeah, I know this is very exciting to have more um, COVID uh, vaccines in our arsenal. Um, and I, I think that, you know, this was a press release from the company, and it sounds like they're planning to um, file for um, FDA approval. Um, I don't know what the timeline for that is going to be, but, um, you know, probably anticipate in the you know coming months. Um, you know, and I think the one thing that's, or there's a few things that are interesting about this. We'll obviously have to wait for kind of full publication of, of the findings, but um, but it is a protein-based vaccine. Um, and so this is a slightly different technology that's um, compared to the mRNA vaccines from Moderna and, and Pfizer. Um, and so this is a welcome addition to our arsenal. Um, these protein vaccines can actually be used in in various settings, but um, have some advantages over mRNA and the fact that they tend to be more stable. They have longer shelf life. Um, they're a little bit less dependent on that um, really uh, strict cold chain, um, and they can be manufactured quickly. Um, and it also seems that this um, vaccine can also be used as a booster dose as well, which is another option for us. So um, all uh, welcome findings. Janice in Westwood Village asks, when does the effectiveness of the booster fall back to zero? I'm over 65 and boosted and wondering when my immunity will wear off. Well, Janice, we have some some good news from a recent study of that. Dr. Adamson? Sure. Yeah, no, I, I think that this is the question I get asked very commonly. Um, and I, I mean, I would say that there's, there's a few different things. I would say that your uh, immunity from the booster you know, I don't think your immunity ever goes down to zero. So I, I think what we've seen from, um, you know, these COVID-19 shots and the boosters is they provide a very robust um, immune response. Um, 
And that protection actually lasts for quite a long time. Um, and the as we've talked about before, there's sort of two responses here. One is the antibody response, and the antibody response kind of peaks right after the, um, you know, with each dose, and it gets to high levels even after the the booster dose. Um, but that that antibody protection does wane over time, and we've seen that happen um, time and time again. And it doesn't mean the vaccines don't work; it just means that the antibodies decline as part of a normal immune response, and that could, you know, potentially lead to um, you know, infections that happen, these breakthrough infections as we've seen. Um, but what we've seen from all the vaccines is that, um, you know, your T cell uh, immune response is very robust and it stays intact for, for quite a long time, um, potentially on the order of years. And that provides protection against severe disease. Um, and that includes hospitalizations and deaths. And we've seen that from all the COVID vaccines. So a reminder with all these variants that have come through is we've we've not yet seen a variant that's been able to totally knock out um, the vaccine's effectiveness in terms of preventing severe disease. Um, and, and I think that's really important to remind people of. All right. We have Lauren in Inglewood. In regards to the mask requirement for schools, especially elementary schools, do we have data on possible effects of masking on the mental health of kids? For example, the extra challenge of reading facial expressions or other social cues. Do we know anything about the impact of that on kids? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. I think, you know, it's something that people are looking into right now. Um, You know, I think that, again, as we were talking about earlier, I don't think the masks are intended to, you know, in any way be a punishment for for kids. It's, you know, it's there for their protection. And we're sort of having to weigh the uh, benefits of masking, um, you know, which we know reduces the chances of infection um, uh, and and help protect kids against COVID with, you know, some potential harms, um, which, you know, perhaps could be um, on development or socialization. Um, I think right now we don't have good data on on that, as far as I'm aware. Um, but you know, it is something that we have to consider. You know, you know, risks and balances to every intervention we do. And and you know, I think that those effects, if they're there, um, you know, are probably going to be um, somewhat short-lived and um, will probably be less than the. Uh, risks of getting COVID um, among those uh, populations. You know, one of the things that we've we've heard from teachers generally is that um, kids have done pretty well with their masking. Obviously, there are some for whom it's a greater challenge than others, but that generally the the kids have been pretty good about it and seem to have adapted quite well. Uh, kids kids are quite resilient. Not to say that there isn't an effect like what you're talking about, Lauren, because that uh, that's a really legitimate and an important question. Um, but in terms of of their adapting. Um, most of the kids of the people that I've spoken with or teachers uh, say that they've they've done well. Um, Robin Wilshire has a personal question for you, Dr. Adamson. He's wondering what led you to pursue this field of infectious disease, given this, you know, wasn't as glamorous or as high profile as it is right now. That, that's a very, that's a great question. Um, I've really enjoyed uh, learning about infectious diseases. Boy, for for basically as long as I can remember, um, I actually remember what what drew me to this was um, was learning about different bacteria and viruses when I was an undergraduate at at UC Berkeley. I took this really uh, fascinating class, and it sort of 
um, you know, open the world up to these like molecular, um, you know, processes of infection and then learning more about medicine and public health and seeing how different infections affect different communities in different ways. Um, it really was kind of cross-cutting from, you know, molecular pathogenesis all the way to uh, public health and thinking about populations. And so those are all uh, reasons I've um, been very interested in infectious diseases for, for, for several years now. Well, and, and I, does it does it seem uh, a little a little funny to have this specialty so high profile over the course of the past two years? Are you still adjusting to that in any way? Yeah, I, I think I, I did a little bit more explaining of what an infectious disease doctor did uh, before the pandemic, and now I think as you know, when someone asks what I do, and I say I'm an infectious disease doctor, I you know you. I get a look that kind of says that, you know, people are uh, sort of know what we do and, and, and what sorts of things we treat. And so, it, yeah, it has been interesting to kind of navigate that over the last two years. I'll, I'll bet. If, if we were in a period where people were having parties, you would have gotten a lot of invitations to come based on your, your specialty uh, as an added plus. Uh, but, of course, we haven't been doing that. Um, thank you so much. We appreciate it, Dr. Adamson. Great to have you with us. And we'll look forward to talking with you next time. Have a good weekend. Great. Thanks so much for having me, Larry. Thanks for listening to this episode of COVID in L.A. If you'd like to stay up to date with the latest coronavirus news, you can listen anytime at LAist.com, at kpcc.org, or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. See you next time and stay safe. I'm Larry Mantle. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people.